My name is Joshua Edward Wright. I was imprisoned in Portland, Oregon, United States for 50 months. And during that time, I realized that not a lot of people know what we go through. So what I will be offering is personal narrative in the hope that the listener will be able to realize the validity of the statement that no human being belongs in a cage. Welcome. And today I have with me Sean. Sean, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's Sean. I released from prison 24 days ago after serving a 25-year sentence. I went in when I was 18, now 43. Some of my current interests and future aspirations have to do with juvenile justice. And I'm actually entering a master's degree program in September, so in about a month. If you want to share your transition from the world to prison, especially being so young, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, when I was first arrested, as I said, I was 18, and I just, I didn't really have a clue of what was in front of me. I was in denial about what I had done and what I was responsible for. I involved myself in a mugging, a spontaneous, random mugging of an innocent man, um, during which the commission of of the robbery, uh, my victim was, was killed unintentionally by another. For the first several years of my sentence, I didn't really have the capacity to understand what I was responsible for and what was in front of me. It took a while to mature and, you know, to begin to reflect and think. Because when I was a kid, as a juvenile, and leading up to the point of my crime, I had many years of, of, kind of, of kind of building up emotional walls, not to feel disappointment. So it resulted in a young person that was you know, unempathetic or callous or really impulsive was peer approval was a, a, set, a important component for me too. Yeah, like the beginning of my prison sentence that you ask about, I, I've kind of still had my head on backwards in a lot of ways. I started off my prison sentence thinking that um, I had to fight at the, like the, the smallest sign of disrespect. I went to a prison that was known as a gladiator camp because it's where they sent the young people. So like my first year and a half, two years of prison, I fought more and got in more trouble than I did for the remainder of my sentence because I kind of was, was lost in a lot of ways. I was lost as a teenager and that carried on to my young adulthood in prison. Once you realized there was another way of doing time, what kind of caused you to come to those conclusions and ideals? Yeah, there was there were several kind of like events or catalysts that changed my perspective from being like young and impulsive and dumb to like starting to mature. I think one of the catalysts was simply that I was maturing. You know, according to like the the neuroscience and brain science research men's brains develop in the mid-20s. The neocortex is, is, isn't developed till the, till the mid-20s. So I think like part of my maturation was biological. Um, but some of, like, some of the things that helped that along and some of the catalysts were I started reading. Um, I hadn't read a book until like since I was an adolescent, probably read like a Dr. Seuss or something. Um, so all the way up from that point until I got to jail, I hadn't read a book. So reading was one of those things that kind of gave me a reference point outside of myself. And so I started looking in that way, like it, it was, it was it's kind of trippy. And I, I know this in retrospect, I don't really know what was happening then. But what was happening is that I was able to 
have that reference point outside myself to reflect on the world and how things are, or how things can be. So um, for the good, for good and bad, but it kind of like the reading made, gave me started helping me to, <clears throat> to change my identity from kind of like a, a wild kid to um, someone that's thoughtful and someone that I guess I, I took on an identity of someone being smart or whatever. What made you realize that kind of thing. Like for me, I remember being faced with violence somewhat regularly, either, you know, verbal or physical. Um, and I just remember getting to a point where I kind of realized that true power is in kind of not responding and kind of uh, carrying yourself in such a way that um, it never gets to violence. Uh, what were there any interactions with people or kind of anything that made you realize that in yourself that, that, you know, you have gone kind of beyond violence? Like in terms of violence, I think part of it was just maturing and realizing that I didn't have to fight, that I didn't have to present in a certain way. So I basically, I was fortunate in some ways because when I went to prison, it was really kind of at, a period of time in Oregon prisons where there were a lot of prison gangs being developed and I had friends in these gangs and there was a potential that could have went that route um, of getting involved in the gang. I was out at Snake River where um, a lot of that kind of was happening and blossoming in the late mid, mid to late nineties, early two thousands. I don't know like the exact reasons why I didn't take that, that fork in the road. And instead I got involved in some programming in prison. So back then in the late, later part of the 90s, the, the state of Oregon still had a budget for vocational training and like kind of other programs. And so I got into some of those programs. I got into a computer-aided drafting program, for example. So being involved in a program kind of kept me off the yard and it kept my focus on something that wasn't prison politics. So that helped my identity verge towards those more positive things than towards the only other thing that was essentially available. So unfortunately, the money for those programs kind of went up, went to the wayside as the prison population expanded because of Measure 11. And um, so to incarcerate more people, they had to cut the budget of rehabilitation. So they made it to where essentially Oregon turned into a state that no longer rehabilitated. And if rehabilitation happened, it happened at the volition of the, of the prisoner and through the help of volunteer programs. It wasn't happening and it hasn't happened since in the, in the past 20 years because of budget or because of programs that are sponsored by the DOC. And that's kind of unfortunate because it, essentially that whole shift in culture that resulted, that came about like in the mid, I mean, before the mid 90s, really kind of in the 80s, going up to the mid 90s with the super predator myth and the Truth and Sentencing Act that the federal government basically passed that resulted in Oregon in, in Measure 11. So Oregon was able to get federal money to enact mandatory minimum sentencing. That shift in culture in the prison industrial complex, basically what it looked like is, is what modern prisons are in their warehouses. They're not places of rehabilitation. They're places to put people away to where they're not seen by society. Especially prisons in rural areas are, are affected, especially like as far as their warehouse, warehouse, prisoners are warehoused everywhere, but the rural area prisoners don't have access to volunteers. For me, like what really helped me with my time, what really helped me to where I'm entering into a graduate program two months after I get out of prison is because I did a lot of my time in 
in Salem, which is a population center. So there were inside-out classes to the University of Oregon. There were volunteers that came in from Portland and Eugene and Salem to run meditation and yoga, which I became interested in. So those are the, those are the things that helped me cope and find resilience in doing a 25-year set. Absolutely. And I remember finding yoga myself in there, you know, living yoga was offered when I was on the inside uh, Monday nights in particular that kind of just got me out of that space, um, kind of that, that violent headspace and just, you know, the environment of prison, hyper-masculine type of stuff going on and everything. It was just a, kind of a break in all of that. But Inside Out College Classes, uh, for those unaware, Inside Out College Class is a college course that, that prisoners and volunteers, students from the outside take together. It's taught by the same professor, taught the same subject, subject uh, but we're taking it inside of a prison. And I do want to hear more about your experience with that, Sean, because it's, it's such a great idea and it's, it has been so beneficial to me. So, yeah, Inside Out was like a one of the best programs, if not the best, during my incarceration. And it was, it's a good program because um, it helped me get an undergrad degree, for one. And I was the first incarcerated person to graduate from the University of Oregon. I'm happy to, proud to say, I guess. It's a unique achievement to do when you're incarcerated, to, to get education when education, the resources for education are, are sparse. It took Mm, about 20 years for me to get that bachelor's degree. I started getting credits in that CAD CAM course I mentioned and out at Snake River. Then there was a Chemeckin Community College program that was after the funding stopped for college. The Pell Grants ended, I think, in 94. And then like state funding ended in the early 2000s. There for a while, I think starting in 2007 or 8, there was a Chemeckin Community College program that was sponsored by a donor. And Inside Out is also sponsored by the college or donors. So that makes it possible to where the state's not paying and the prisoners don't have money to pay that there's kind of this opportunity for education. It takes a long time. It took 20 years to get there, but I was fortunate to get there. And so besides like the, the credentials of the degree or whatever, it's, it's really those classes are vital because what happens in those classes is that community comes into prison. That might not sound like much to people that haven't done time, but when you're in prison, you there's a strong sense of isolation. There's a strong sense of, of being thrown away by society. In some regards, you could say that that's what happens when you commit a crime, or it makes sense that you're thrown away. So that, that you know, you hear those arguments, but the, the flip side of that argument is if that person or if the person in the prisoner is just doing time, just being warehoused and nothing's happening, there's being there's more damage being done to that person and that person's community that they're releasing to. So I mean that's a whole like kind of a different whole different conversation when when you know pertaining to rehabilitation. So but back to inside out, the relevance and how important that class those courses were was the community coming inside and the way that the community coming inside has a humanizing effect on the participants that you're sitting across from a, a quote-unquote normal person and this person's not basically demonizing you or judging you and they're, they're, you're having this face-to-face encounter. And there, it's, it's, that encounter is priceless because you don't have those. You have encounters with your fellow prisoners. It's just every day run of the mill and good, bad, and ugly. And then you have the counter, encounters with staff that are typically tend towards the negative. And you have counters with your family that are positive, but that's your family. They're, they're, they're your support, and that, that's kind of like 
something that is nice, but you get like through phone and through visit. So it's, it's nice, but it's still like at a distance. And even the, the, the people that come in for the inside out classes, it's still at a distance because they have rules about contact and stuff like that. There's still like regulations that keep people from becoming too familiar, I guess. Nonetheless, like still that them coming in and like just seeing people sitting across in a circle and having like these classes that aren't lecture based, but are instead like people based and group based. Inside Out was was one of the, the the best programs of my incarceration for sure. It helped me out, helped me in a, in a lot of ways, and uh, helped me find like a lot of meaning and resilience. Next, I want to talk about you know how your um, interactions with family and friends were on the outside, and how that kind of progressed over time. Uh, for me, I remember just people kind of disappearing over years, and most of the time it was for legitimate reasons and everything like that. Um, I'm sure. But, you know, people just disappear and we have no way of keeping in touch with them. So I'd love to hear how that process was for you. When it, when it comes to family, I have a fairly small family, but they're they're supportive. And I was fortunate to where my family never fell off. Yeah, like I, I really recognize how fortunate I was to have that because I know a lot of guys in their their family tires out. And it's not easy being a family of someone that's, of someone that's doing a long time in prison. It requires them to sometimes send money, but also to, to travel and spend their time and money for hotel rooms and things like that to visit. That doesn't even include like all the stress from my siblings and mom, for example, like about what's happening and stuff like that or how I'm doing and how I'm coping with it. So I was fortunate that my family was there from day one and they were there through my whole incarceration and all the way to my release. And it was another primary component of, of my resilience of doing 25 years was, was the three, three components for me were family, education, and family and friends, education, and meditation. You asked about friends as well. Like the friends I had as a teen before I committed my crime, you know, I would hear from them periodically the first maybe five, 10 years, you know, about that far in, I stopped hearing from everyone altogether. And it was just periodic contact anyway. I mean, I didn't really, they're young, we were young, and um, you know, I don't have any expectations that they would have stayed with me for 25 years. Being released less than a month ago, you know, how has that process been for you? It's been, it's been great. Like I've had a, taken in a lot of repression, impressions, a lot of experiences. Uh, I've been fortunate to where I kind of haven't, had to work right away so i've had some adjustment time um i've been fortunate to spend time with some friends and family and see a lot of cool places in oregon uh i went to coast I, i've been to a few different rivers a few different trails i even went up to brighton bush hot springs um i've gotten around in these 24 days the first like few days four days ish was pretty like packed with spending time with family and like trying to get a bunch of stuff done while they were still in town. Like everything from a bank account to electric to DMV, all that. And so like a little bit later after spending time with family and friends and meeting people periodically, things have slowed down a bit. I don't know. It was like, there's, I was talking to someone, a mentor of mine earlier about this today about kind of like noticing a contrast now that I'm out, I live alone. And so I have my own space. 
And that's so much different than being in prison. You don't have your own space. You're never alone. And it's one of the aggravating things about prison. Like there's a few things on the on, high on my list that make prison time hard. One is like that you're never alone. And there's kind of always, you're always being scrutinized and watched. Another one, there's some, there's other stuff on the top of the list, but another one that comes to mind now is a lack of intimacy. You don't, you can't have, you get a hug or a kiss in the visiting room, but you can't like have intimacy. You can't spoon or lay on a couch with, with a girl or on a bed or whatever. That depravity is, is those two are kind of what made, were two of the harder components of doing time. So like now that I'm out and I'm able to access that to some, to some extent to where I'm alone, I have had some intimacy. It's like this sharp contrast of, of experience in life. And like, I'm really enjoying it and, um, and just really trying to take it all in, appreciate like the moments. There's even the small moments, like I was riding my bike to the DMV on uh, like a week ago to pick up my license and I had to go to Springfield because that was the earliest I could get an appointment. So it was like a 40 minute bike ride, but it was, it was an awesome bike ride. Cause, cause like there were several moments to where I just took these deep breaths and looked around in nature and it wasn't like contrived or anything. It was like, I really felt free. So there's been so much of that, like feeling of, of freedom and nature and in relationship and even in isolation, the flip side of the isolation and that it, the negative of that is like, it's nice to be isolated. It's nice to have my own space. But then there are times where I feel lonely because I just spent the past 25 years, like never, well, I wouldn't say lonely. I didn't feel lonely because you feel lonely in prison for sure, but you're never alone. That's something I've been like this past week or so been kind of navigating through is that feeling of, of enjoying like my space, but also feeling alone. I really appreciate you being on. Is there anything else you want the audience to know or you want to say before we wrap up? Your message that you're putting out there is, is a good message about the prison industrial complex and criminalization of America. And like my, my message and my, my kind of like my soapbox that I'm studying for and that um, I'm working towards and that I'm passionate about is is at-risk youth prevention. So, like, I reflect on myself as a youth that I was, you know, a delinquent, I was wild, and I, I essentially needed someone to mentor me or to help me or to intervene. My message to, I guess, to this, to your audience and just in general in my life is kids that commit crimes are kids. They're not evil people. They're not, they're hurt kids that have been traumatized or need help with their trauma or just need to be seen and supported. And the thing is, like, it requires extra attention and effort. So for me, in the 10th grade, for example, I was kicked out of school and I didn't go back. And two years later, I was in prison. So like, I want to use like my narrative and my experience, because if there would have been a teacher or a coach or a community member or something like that, because all I really had was my mom and she worked full time and she couldn't control me. If there would have been someone else there to intervene, then there wouldn't be a victim and there wouldn't be a kid spending 25 years in prison. So I, I, my message is just, is just to help kids that are, are screwed up, kids that are in the drugs, kids that are, delinquency usually starts pretty young, like pre-teen, if the kid's out egging houses and breaking windows, that's a sign. Um, and 
a little bit later, they might start using drugs, skipping school, doing other things. And it might not be that the vast majority of those kids don't end up committing crimes. But there's going to be a good, a fair portion that do intervene, helping those kids' life for, for the sake of everyone. They, they're, they don't get it, so they need help from it at all. That's my message, man. I want to thank Sean McQueenie and everyone out there listening. We'll see you next time.